0: very pleased this evening to have Conor McHugh with us uh, from the University of Southampton. He's going to speak to us tonight about fitting belief. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you all for coming. Thanks for the invitation. It's an honour to be here. Uh, If I'm not audible at any point, please raise your hand or something like that. Okay, so uh, this paper starts from two plausible claims, claims that I think are plausible, which... I have imaginatively called A and B, and they're on your handout. Um, So the first claim, claim A, is that belief has a standard of correctness. So that's to say that beliefs can be correct or incorrect, and whether a given belief is correct or incorrect depends on whether it satisfies some standard. So uh, it's very widely held that the standard is truth, so when you have a belief, that belief is correct just in case the content of the belief is true, otherwise incorrect. Uh, Some people think that the standard is knowledge. I want to be mostly neutral about that. The issue will come up again uh, towards the end of the talk. In the meantime, I want to be neutral, but I'm just going to talk as though the standard is truth uh, for brevity. Okay. the second plausible claim, uh, which I call B, is that the standard of correctness for belief is. (coughs) fundamental to epistemic normativity. So by fundamental here I mean that uh, the standard of correctness helps to explain the extensions of certain or of, of other uh, epistemic normative properties. So for example, it's very commonly thought that uh, beliefs are justified just when and because they have some appropriate connection to the truth. So they're sufficiently likely to be true or constitute a sufficiently good attempt at truth or something like that. So that is kind of rough, but um, I think that general idea is very, very widespread, and I hope it's uh, clear enough for my purposes here. Okay, so the normative property that I'm going to focus on is the property of being an epistemic reason. So according to claim B, what makes some consideration an epistemic reason for a given belief is some relation between that consideration and the putative correctness of that belief. Okay, so I'm going to assume that A and B are true. I'm not going to question them. If they are true, they raise two questions, and these are the questions that I want to address. So the first question, uh, which I've called first question, is uh, what's the nature of this standard of correctness. So can we say something to characterise the property of correctness that beliefs have when they're true? second question, how does the standard of correctness ground uh, epistemic normativity? So can we articulate some principles that explain why uh, certain considerations get to be epistemic reasons by uh, linking the standard of correctness for belief to epistemic reasons in some way? That's the second question, and I think that good answers to these questions should uh, should satisfy a couple of desiderata. So I call those D one and D two. So the first desideratum is that uh, answers to these questions should cohere with plausible claims in the theory of normativity in general. Okay, so I take that to be obvious. And second desideratum. Uh, Ideally, they should contribute to, or at least they should be compatible with, uh, a good explanation of the dominance of evidence among reasons for belief. Okay, so what do I mean by dominance? Um, So some philosophers think that only evidence can give reasons for or against belief. That claim is controversial, so I don't want to assume that. We could say something weaker. We could say that only evidence can give epistemic reasons. Um, But I think that's to say not enough. Um, So we might agree that only evidence can give epistemic reasons, but it wouldn't follow from this that these uh, epistemic reasons have any special standing uh, compared to other putative reasons for and against belief. But the evidence does seem to have special standing. So it seems that believing in the absence of sufficient evidence always makes you irrational or criticizable in some overall sense. So the evidence isn't just one set of reasons that you can weigh up against the others and that potentially gets outweighed when you're reasoning about what to believe. You've got overall sufficient reason to believe something only if you have specifically sufficient evidential reason to believe that thing. So that's what I mean by So maybe something stronger is true, but I don't want to assume that. Okay, so so much by way of introduction. So what I want to do is um, look at two accounts that have recently been offered of correctness for belief. Um, I'll argue that they don't do so well by those two desiderata. Uh, And then I'll propose and try and defend Uh, an alternative view. Okay, so um, the two views that I'm going to look at that are in the literature, uh, first one I call the prescriptive view, the second one I call the evaluative view. So the prescriptive view says that the standard of correctness for belief is a prescriptive norm. Uh, So by prescriptive norm, I mean uh, the sort of thing that tells you roughly what you ought to do or what you may do. So these are the kinds of norms that are sometimes called deontic. They're supposed to be able to get a grip on agents and guide them. Uh, Whereas the evaluative view says that the standard of correctness for belief is a value. I'll say more about that as we go along. Okay, so the prescriptive view, its answer to the first question is that the standard of correctness for belief is a prescriptive norm. So what does that mean? Well, the simplest version of that view would say that um, you ought to believe what's true and you ought not believe what's false. Okay, so if some proposition is true, you ought to believe it, and if it's false, you ought not. And some people have defended something of that sort. Uh, now, that's not the version of the prescriptive view that I'm going to really engage with here, because I think that version of the prescriptive view is not the most plausible version. So the reason for that, broadly speaking, is that it makes uh, various demands on people that it's it's not plausible that we're subject to. So there are lots of truths that are beyond our ken. There are lots of truths that are uninteresting. There are many, many more truths than we can ever get around to believing. So it's not very plausible that we're doing something wrong by failing to believe all those truths. That problem, there might be ways of getting around it by qualifying uh, the requirement to believe truths in certain ways, but there are other problems to do with propositions that would be false if you believed them, even though they're now true. So for propositions like that, if we say that you ought to believe them when they're true, we give you a requirement that is unsatisfiable in a certain sense. So that's just to hint at why I'm not gonna deal with that version of the prescriptive view. We can talk more about that later if you like. So the more plausible version of this, the prescriptive view is a kind of permissive version of it. So rather than saying that you ought to believe what's true, it says you may believe what's true. So it's a permission to believe what's true. And you may not believe what's false. Okay. So that version of the prescriptive view has been defended by Daniel Whiting, among other people. Uh, so, although I think that version of the prescriptive view is uh, the more plausible one, I don't think it does so well by our desiderata, so I'll start with D2. So I think that this view fails to explain why evidence for some proposition is a reason to believe that proposition at all, and a fortiori, I think it fails to explain why such reasons are dominant in the sense that I said. So why that? So. First observation, on the face of it, something's being permitted, uh, being merely permitted, so not forbidden, or evidence for something's being permitted, doesn't seem to be or explain the existence of any reason to do that thing. So you may stir your tea clockwise rather than anticlockwise, but that doesn't indicate or make it the case that you have some reason to do that. Now, let's just sort of put that worry aside and allow the defender of this prescriptive view to say that uh, mere permissions do at least sometimes give rise to reasons, at least the permission to believe truths, let's say, um, somehow makes it the case that evidence for some propositions being true is a reason to believe that proposition. But if we allow this, then more problems follow, I think. And these problems stem from the following point. So if believing the truth is merely permitted and disbelieving it, i.e. believing the false, is forbidden, then uh, withholding belief about what's true, so suspending judgment about something, must also be permitted. If it wasn't, then of the three available attitudes, belief, disbelief, and withholding, uh, to a given truth, if withholding wasn't permitted, then only one of the three would be permitted, only believing it would. But if only one available option is permitted, then that option is required. right? So if there's only one thing that you can do that's permissible, then that's the thing you ought to do. That thing is not merely permitted, but also required. So this view, it seems to me, has to allow that um, withholding belief about a truth, suspending judgment on a truth, is permitted and thereby has the very same status, as far as the relevant norm goes, as believing the truth. So I think that's already kind of implausible, so I think withholding on a truth is never correct in the same sense that believing the truth is. But it also leads to bad consequences, I think. So in particular, it seems to lead to the consequence that if evidence for some proposition is a reason to believe that proposition, then it's also a reason to withhold belief about that proposition, to suspend judgment on it, a reason in just the same sense and of the same strength. So the reason for that is, so we're thinking that true belief is permitted, and there's going to be some principle linking permission to reasons that explains why evidence for something's being true is a reason to believe it. But I've just argued that if we think true belief is merely permitted, we also have to accept that withholding belief is permitted. So that very same principle is going to make evidence for a proposition's truth be a reason to withhold belief on that proposition just as much as a reason to believe it. And I think that's not very intuitive. So intuitively, evidence for some proposition is a reason for specifically believing it. So it looks like uh, the permissive view can't plausibly explain why evidence gives reasons for belief. So even a conclusive proof of some proposition on this view, it looks like, isn't going to give any reason to believe it. So if there are ever reasons to believe anything, those reasons are going to have to be non-evidential. So it looks like this view can't explain the dominance of evidential reasons, and it fails desideratum D2. So I think uh, the most promising way to try and respond to this objection is to try and argue that evidence for a proposition taken on its own indeed isn't a reason to believe that proposition and doesn't entail that you have any reason to believe it, but rather it's only when you've got some reason to make up your mind about whether that proposition is true that you have any reason to believe it. So if you've got some reason to make up your mind about whether P and also you've got uh, evidence for P, then you've got a reason to believe P So there are different ways you could develop that line of thought. So one thing you could say would be that uh, although the evidence considered on its own is not a reason to believe uh, the proposition, uh, it constitutes part of a, if you like, a hybrid reason when you've also got some consideration that favours making up your mind about the proposition in question. So it becomes part of a reason when you've also got this other stuff, uh, favoring making up your mind. Alternatively, you might say that the evidence is never a reason to believe, but it's an enabler or a necessary condition on uh, your having sufficient reason to believe anything. So if you said something like that, then you could um, get an explanation of something that looks a little bit like the dominance what I call the dominance of evidence among reasons for belief so you get the result that you're always uh, criticizable in some sense if you don't have sufficient uh, evidence for the thing that you believe um, but I think that's not enough um, and the reason I think it's not enough is that so it explains something that looks a bit like what I call dominance but It's not quite dominant, and I think it's not enough like it. So we end up with a very unorthodox view of reasons for belief if we take this kind of line. So we end up saying that whenever anyone has a reason for belief, either we're saying it's some kind of hybrid, you know, evidential and non-evidential combination that constitutes their reason for belief, or we're saying, well, actually, it's the non-evidential stuff. It's the stuff that just favors making up your mind one way or the other. That's the reason for belief. And the evidence is an enabler for your having a reason to make up your mind in the way that you do. And I just think that both both of those ways of thinking about reasons for belief are very, very unorthodox. They run counter to the way that we typically think about reasons for belief and the way that philosophers have tended to think about them. I also think that they give bad results in certain sorts of cases. So suppose I'm sitting in my office, and I'm idly looking out the window uh, when I should be thinking about my paper instead, and a car goes by, and I see the car, and I see that it's red, and I form the belief that the car that just went by my window is red. So we can just set that case up so that I've got no reason whatsoever to make up my mind about whether the car that just went by my office window is red. It's not interesting. I don't care. I shouldn't be thinking about it. So it looks like on the kind of view that I'm considering here, um, my belief there that the car that just went by is red is one for which I have no reason and is not based on any reason. But Because after all, the only thing that's a plausible candidate to be my reason there is just the evidence, right? I saw that it was red. And the suggestion here is that the evidence on its own is no reason for belief. And that just looks implausible, right? I mean, it looks like I have a perfectly good reason for my belief, namely, I saw that it was red, or you know it looked red, or however you want to characterize that reason. And my belief is based on that good reason and is made reasonable. So. I think there's you know there's more to say about these issues but that's why I don't uh think in the end that this reply to my objection to the prescriptive view uh works. Okay. So that's D2. Um I also think this prescriptive view doesn't do so well by D1. So we're assuming here um that uh what epistemic reasons you have that's explained by the standard of correctness for belief. So that was assumption B. So on this prescriptive view, this amounts to the claim that what epistemic reasons you have, that's explained by the facts about what you ought to believe or what you may believe. But it's very, very plausible, I think, very, very natural to think that what you ought and may do or believe are themselves determined by your reasons. So, if you ought to fie, that's because you've got most reason to fie, or decisive reason to fie. If you may fie, that's because you lack most or decisive reason not to fie. That's a very, very natural view about a connection between uh, ought and may on the one hand, and reasons on the other. But if we think that, then, given assumption B. This prescriptive view is going to lead us into a kind of explanatory circularity so what you've got reason to believe and what you ought or may believe are each going to be explained in terms of the other and that doesn't look good this is also going to imply that you never have most uh, or decisive reason to believe a falsehood some people i think are going to be happy with that i find that a little bit odd so evidence can be partial and it can be misleading so it seems as though sometimes Uh, what your evidence gives you is most reason to believe a falsehood. Okay, so these points aren't decisive. I've made various assumptions there that you could challenge, but uh, what I've tried to do is show that if you're going to hold on to this prescriptive view, that comes with some costs, and I find those costs too high, so I reject that view. Okay, so that's the prescriptive view. what about the evaluative view? So the evaluative view says that the standard of correctness for belief is a value. So true belief is in some way good, false belief is in some way bad. So that's the answer to the first question, according to the evaluative view. How's it going to answer the second question? Well, the natural thing to do would be to appeal to some principle to the effect that when uh, Fying would promote or instantiate some value, or when there's evidence that it would do so, then you've got a reason to fye. So if we said that, then that looks like we, it will allow us to explain why evidence for some proposition is a reason for specifically believing that proposition. So that looks nice, uh, but unfortunately, I think this view struggles with desideratum D2 So an initial point here is that there are lots of ways in which a given belief might be valuable besides by being true. So it might make you happy, for example. So on the face of it, unless the value of true belief is said to be infinite or something, it's hard to see why reasons explained by this value would dominate others. It's hard to see why they couldn't occasionally get outweighed by reasons connected to other values. Now, I think a natural response to that initial worry would be to say, "Well, look, what we 're interested in here is epistemic assessment. An epistemic assessment is uniquely concerned with one fundamental value, namely the value of true belief. So insofar as we 're assessing beliefs epistemically, we just don't care about, for example, the value of having beliefs that makes you that make you happy." So that's fine as far as it goes I think but it isn't enough because what we want is an explanation of why this kind of assessment dominates in the overall assessment of belief so why aren't we allowed to say well sure your belief isn't doing so well epistemically but hey it makes you happy so you know overall you're doing fine so I think the Most interesting and plausible way to reply to that point would be to say that epistemic assessment, i.e. truth-orientated assessment, is assessment that's proper to belief. Um, So it's assessment that's in some way uh, associated with the nature of belief in a way that other kinds of assessment that you could uh, engage in aren't. So what we could do here would be to invoke the distinction between... Uh, attributive and predicative good. So between goodness, quae, thing of a certain kind, and goodness, simpliciter. So then we could say that truth makes belief good, makes a belief good, quay belief, even if other things can make a belief good in other ways. So here we'd be thinking of belief as um, what Judith Thompson calls a goodness-fixing kind, a bit like the kind knife. So there's such a thing as a good knife, and the standard for being a good knife is fixed by what it is to be a knife. And the thought here would be that there's such a thing as a good belief, and the standard for being a good belief, namely truth, is fixed by what it is to be a belief. And then we would say that epistemic assessment is the assessment of beliefs as beliefs, and that's why it dominates uh, in the overall assessment of belief. So I find that picture quite attractive, I must say. Um, But in the end, I don't think it satisfies D2. And the reason I don't think it satisfies D2 is this. It's just not the case that if X is an F, whether X is an F dominates other considerations in assessing X full stop as opposed to assessing it as an F nor does it dominate in assessing an agent's choice of X. So let me give an example to illustrate that. So suppose you are choosing a car, so we can assess cars as cars, right? We can uh, assess whether the car that you choose is a good car. But for all that, you might have better reasons to get a cheap car than a good one. And if you choose the cheap one, you need not be irrational or criticizable. So it's not clear on this view why forming beliefs in the absence of sufficient evidence should make you irrational or criticizable in an overall sense, right? So you might be thereby risking forming a belief that's bad qua belief, but um, given that there might be all sorts of other considerations that favor having that belief, like that it would make you happy, <coughs> it's not yet clear why you would thereby be criticizable uh, in any important sense. So that's why I think the evaluative view struggles with D2. What about D1? Well, um, one worry here is that if you like the fitting attitudes account of value, um, the evaluative view is going to look a bit funny. So the fitting attitudes account of value says that what's good is what's fitting or correct to value. So if you think that, then the evaluative view is going to be saying that true beliefs are correct because it's correct to value them. Um, That's not exactly circular, but it seems a bit odd, I think. You might reject the fitting attitude account of value. I don't think you should, um, but you might do that. But that's a commitment. Uh, It's not an insignificant commitment in any case. Here's a slightly more kind of nebulous worry. It's just a little bit odd, I think, on the face of it, to suppose that something's been good also makes it correct. So they just seem like different properties. So pleasure is good, but it's not correct. Uh, Good knives aren't correct knives. Now, you might say, well, pleasure and knives, these don't have standards of correctness. They're just not apt to be correct or incorrect. And of course, that's true. But I think that just supports the idea that correctness and goodness are very different kinds of thing. So it seems natural to me to say that if true beliefs are good, that's because they're correct, rather than the converse. And I think this raises a more general worry both about this view and the prescriptive view. And it's this, look, what's the motivation? Why should we suppose that the standard of correctness for belief has to be understood in terms of some, on the face of it, seemingly distinct evaluative or prescriptive property? So why isn't correctness itself the property that we're looking for? So maybe the thought is that correctness just isn't a distinct property from those others, or maybe the thought is that correctness isn't normative. Um, but I wanna propose a view that rejects those thoughts. So I move, ha- move to uh, section five, correctness as fittingness, where I'm gonna propose an alternative view of the standard of correctness for belief. So I should say that this view, um, the main ideas here are ones that uh, have been developed in collaborative work with my colleague Jonathan Way, so um, he's at least partly to blame uh, for this. Um, Okay, so I say we shouldn't understand the uh, standard of correctness for belief as a prescriptive norm or as a value. We should instead understand it as just an instance of the familiar property of correctness or fittingness for attitudes. And I suggest that that property, fittingness, as I'm going to call it, is a distinct normative property in its own right. It's not prescriptive or evaluative. So there are lots of different kinds of attitudes you can have. So you might want a potted plant in your office. You might admire Nelson Mandela. You might regret some thoughtless remark. You might fear the onrushing tiger. All of those attitudes can be fitting or unfitting depending on the features of the object of the attitude. So it's correct or fitting or appropriate or right to admire Mandela, to fear the tiger. It's incorrect or unfitting or inappropriate or wrong to admire Idi Amin and to fear the onrushing kitten. So all of these attitudes set a standard that has to be met in order for the attitude to be fitting or correct when held towards a given object. So for example, the attitude of admiration uh, sets a standard which gives you the features that a given uh, object must have in order for admiration of that object to be fitting, in order to make the object admirable, as we say. So it's in virtue of what admiration is that the qualities that Mandela has or had make a person admirable, whereas those exhibited by Idi Amin uh, don't. So my claim is that belief is just like that, right? The attitude of belief sets truth as a standard that propositions have to have in order for belief to be fitting when held towards those propositions. And when an attitude is fitting, my claim is it has a normative property It's not fitting because you ought to have that attitude or because you may have it or because it would be good if you had it. Fittingness is distinct from those properties. Okay, so that's my answer to the first question. Um, Might not seem like much of an answer, uh, but that's what you're getting. Uh, So, turn to the second question. So how am I going to explain um, how things get to be reasons for belief? Well, my suggestion is this. The standard of correctness for a belief can explain why evidence for a proposition is a reason to believe that proposition because what it is to be a reason is explained in terms of fittingness. So the explanation is going to proceed by a constitutive account of reasons. So here's how that's going to go. So it's very plausible that there's a connection between reasons and reasoning. So reasons seem to be the sort of thing that it's suitable to reason with, we might say. And that suggests that we can understand reasons, roughly speaking, as premises of good reasoning. Um, That's a suggestion. Something like that is a suggestion that Kieran Setia has made, and Jonathan Way has made it in other work as well. So to try and make that more precise, I've got principle RR on your handout, focusing on reasons for belief. So that says that for the fact that P to be a reason to believe that Q is for P to be a premise of a good pattern of reasoning leading from fitting responses to the belief that Q. Okay, so I need to make a few clarifications of that. So reasoning I'm thinking of as a kind of transition between attitudes. So you start from some attitudes and you make a transition to some further attitude. Um, So we can call the attitudes that you start from premise attitudes or premise responses and the attitude that you get to a conclusion attitude or a conclusion response. So sometimes those attitudes are beliefs and a premise of reasoning in my sense is the content of a belief where that belief is among the premise attitudes of the of that bit of reasoning so you might for example reason from the belief that the dog didn't bark and the belief that the dog barks at strangers to the belief that the dog knew the killer so in that case the first two beliefs are premise attitudes the last one is uh, the conclusion attitude and that the dog didn't bark and that the dog barks at strangers, those are premises of your reasoning in my sense. Okay, so that's what it is for something to be a premise of reasoning. Uh, A couple of other points about principle RR. So the reasoning that corresponds to any given reason doesn't have to be carried out. So patterns of reasoning are abstract. So the claim isn't that for someone to have a reason, they actually have to do some reasoning. It's just that the, the pattern of reasoning has to be there in some, uh, in some relevant sense. It plausibly has to be connected to the person in some way. I'm not really going to say anything about how that has to be. Um, one thing I will say, though, is that it's also plausible that the agent doesn't have to have the beliefs that are the premise responses of the relevant bit of reasoning. So it might be that you have a reason even though you don't actually believe the fact that constitutes that reason. You don't believe that it obtains. Okay, R.R. says that reasons are premises of good reasoning from fitting responses. So the point there is just that you can be reasoning well, but you can start from bad places. And in that case, your reasoning won't correspond to any reason that you have. So if you reason from a falsehood, for example, I take it that falsehoods can't be reasons... Um, but you might nonetheless reason well from that falsehood. But your belief in the falsehood won't be a fitting response. <coughs> okay, so that's an account of reasons in terms of good patterns of reasoning. So then, I take the idea of a pattern of reasoning to be reasonably intuitive, so when you reason according to modus ponens, that's a good pattern. When you affirm the consequent, that's a bad pattern. Can we say more about what it is for a pattern of reasoning to be good? Uh, Well, we can try. So it seems very plausible that good theoretical reasoning, so by theoretical reasoning, I mean reasoning to beliefs, seems very plausible that that has something to do with getting you from true beliefs to other true beliefs. So roughly, good patterns of theoretical reasoning are ones that normally, or other things equal, are truth-preserving. So true beliefs are correct or fitting. Good theoretical reasoning preserves truth normally. Is is it a coincidence that those two things are the case? I suggest not. So I suggest that truth-preserving theoretical patterns are good patterns precisely because they preserve correctness or fittingness. So this generalizes to a plausible account of good reasoning as such. So you might think that good reasoning as such is reasoning that preserves fittingness. Um, And that's my initial suggestion for what good reasoning is. There are various ways in which that has to be qualified. Um, But the basic idea is that, look, the point of reasoning is to keep you on track. So when reasoning is going well, then insofar as you put good things in, you're going to get good things out. So it's going to get you from fitting starting points to fitting finishing points, at least normally. So if you have a fitting intention and a true means-end belief, and you reason to an intention to take the means, well, if your initial intention was fitting, then your intention to take the means will also be fitting. So the account of what it is to be a good pattern of reasoning is GF on the handout. So that says that for it to be the case that the transition from a bunch of attitudes, which I designate with P, to some further attitude, which I designate with C, for that to be a good pattern of reasoning is for it to be the case that normally, if those first bunch of attitudes are fitting, then so too is the one that you get to, the conclusion attitude. So the P's are premise attitudes, the C is the conclusion attitude, and the arrow Denotes the transition between them. So, normally, there obviously uh, is a sort of placeholder for an account of defeasible reasoning and reasons, and I'm not going to give you an account of that today, I'm afraid. But that's what it's there for. So, RR and GF, those two things together constitute my answer to the second question. So, they tell you um, why it is that evidence for some proposition is a reason to believe that proposition, given that true beliefs are fitting. So given some evidence, you can do a bit of reasoning to that belief, and that bit of reasoning will satisfy the condition that GF says is a condition Mm -hmm. on good reasoning, and by RR, it will therefore be a reason for that belief. So I'll mention a couple of object. sorry, a couple of attractions uh, of this view and then I'll finish by talking about a couple of objections to the There are lots of other objections you could have. I think there are certain things that would need to be refined from the formulations on the handout. Um, but I'm just sort of trying to give you the general, uh, the, the basic tenets of the account, if you like. So why do I think this is an attractive view? Well, I think it does well by the two desiderata. So... In effect, the suggestion is to understand epistemic normativity as a species of the broader genus of normativity for attitudes. And uh, the way that I've proposed that we do that fits into what I think is a unified, well, what is a unified and what I think is a plausible general picture of how various normative notions hang together. Notions like uh, that of being a reason, reasoning, fittingness, and um, given some other assumptions, value and ought. So uh, Jonathan Way and I have defended that broader picture in more detail elsewhere. Uh, in doing that, the view refrains from arbitrarily taking correctness to be explained in terms of some seemingly distinct property. Uh, it satisfies the Diderotum D2, and I think in quite a nice Way So the way that it does that is basically, um, on this account, things like practical incentives for having beliefs just won't count as reasons for those beliefs. So the fact that it would make you happy to believe something uh, won't count as a reason to believe that thing on this view. The reason for that is that it won't come out as good reasoning to go from the belief that it would make you happy to believe P to the belief that P because after all, it could very easily be the case that it would indeed make you happy to believe that P, but nonetheless, sadly, P is false. So that kind of reasoning won't be good, and so the relevant consideration won't be a reason for the belief. It will plausibly be a reason to want to have the belief, to intend, perhaps, to bring it about that you have the belief, but it won't be a reason for the belief. Now, those claims aren't novel, right? So lots of people think that considerations of that kind aren't reasons for belief but are perhaps reasons to want to have beliefs. So it's not that those claims are novel but what I think is nice is that they fall out of the account that I've proposed in a very, very straightforward way. So I take that to be an attraction of the account. So I'll finish by talking about two objections Uh, I'm sure you'll have plenty more So the first objection is that um, basically what I've offered can't be uh, satisfactory because it can't give you a sufficient condition for good reasoning and reasons. So take the example of transition T on the handout. So there's a bit of reasoning you might do. You might move from the belief that grass is green to the belief that 79 is prime. So the problem here is that T seems to satisfy the condition on good reasoning that I've offered but it doesn't seem very plausible that it's good reasoning or that the fact that grass is green is a reason to believe that 79 is prime so the reason uh, that it seems to satisfy the condition is just that it's necessarily true uh, that 79 is prime so trivially normally if it's true that grass is green then it's true that 79 is prime so if you make that Transition is, uh, it preserves truth. Okay, so that's the objection. Um, To respond to that objection, I want to make an observation. And the observation is this. You can't perform that transition, T, competently and thereby add the conclusion to your stock of beliefs. So to reason competently, you have to not only reason in a way that instantiates the right sort of pattern, a fittingness-preserving one, as I claim, but you also have to be appropriately sensitive to the fact that it does so. So that's kind of a familiar point. So you, if you're just drawing conclusions randomly, but those conclusions happen to uh, follow from your premises, you don't count it as reasoning competently. Now, the transition T That's truth-preserving just because the conclusion is necessarily true. It has nothing to do with the premise. So in order to be sensitive to the truth-preserving character of that transition, you have to already be aware uh, that the conclusion is necessarily true. So you can't competently come to believe that conclusion, that 79 is prime, by performing that transition. So armed with that observation, in fact, there are two different ways we could deal with the objection. Um, I'll just say both of them and, and not choose between them. You can, you can tell me if you prefer one to the other. Um, so one of them would be to kind of bite the bullet and say, no, look, T is good reasoning, and the fact that grass is green is a reason to believe that 79 is prime, but this is a useless reason. So you can't avail of it uh, in coming to believe that 79 is prime. So any intuitions to the effect that it's not a reason at all are just explained away by the fact that it's a useless reason. Alternatively, we might um, just revise the account of good reasoning in order to accommodate these kinds of cases. So we might uh, revise it and make it into GFR on the handout and say that a good pattern of reasoning is one that you can do competently and thereby come to hold the conclusion attitude. So competence there would be um, the pattern preserves fittingness and you perform it in a way that's sensitive to that fact. Okay, so the two different ways we could go. I don't really mind which one we do. Here's another objection which I'll finish on. So you can have reasons not to believe stuff. Um And presumably an account of epistemic reasons should apply to them. And it's just not clear how the account I offered applies to it, because it's not clear that not believing something can be fitting or unfitting. So I think the spirit of the account, it's kind of obvious how to accommodate reasons for not believing stuff within the spirit of the account. So the point of reasoning, we might say, is not only to get you from fitting responses to further fitting responses, but also to kind of avoid unfitting ones. But how to accommodate that within the letter of the account? Well again, in a spirit of pluralism, I'll offer two uh, incompatible responses to that objection and not choose between them. Uh, So here's the first uh, possible account that I can think of of reasons not to hold an attitude So I use C with a stroke through it to denote not holding attitude C. So the first account is GN1, so that says, for it to be the case that a bit of reasoning that concludes in not holding an attitude, uh, or a pattern that concludes in not holding an attitude, for it to be the case that that's a good pattern is for it to be the case that normally when the premise attitudes are fitting, that attitude uh, that you, thereby come not to hold is unfitting. Okay. So that's, I think, the most obvious way to go. The problem with that is that it looks like it's going to undergenerate reasons not to believe things. Uh, So in particular, it's not going to count weak evidence against some proposition as a reason not to believe it. So suppose the weather forecast said that there was a chance of rain So that looks like a reason not to believe that it's going to be a dry day. But it's not true that normally when the weather forecast says that there's a chance of rain, uh, it's not a dry day. Unfortunately, the weather forecast is not that reliable. So the transition from believing that the forecast said there was a chance of rain to not believing that it's going to be dry isn't going to satisfy GN1. But you might think that should be good reasoning So I think the way to answer this objection, and this comes back to the question about what the standard of fittingness for belief is, is to say that the standard is not truth after all, but knowledge. So when the forecast says that there's a chance of rain, that doesn't reliably indicate that it won't be a dry day, but it does stop you from knowing that it's going to be a dry day. So even if it is going to be dry, you don't know that it is. So if the standard of Fittingness for belief is knowledge. It's not fitting to believe that it's going to be a dry day. So if we go that way, then the transition in question will satisfy GN1 after all. So in general, since weak counter evidence defeats knowledge, it looks like this move gets around the problem of under-generation of reasons not to believe. Maybe you think it's too controversial to claim that the standard of fittingness for belief is knowledge. Um, But I've got another reply, uh, if you didn't like that one. So we could say instead, Gn2, so we could say that a pattern of reasoning that concludes with not having an attitude, that's a good pattern just when the bit of reasoning that concludes with having that attitude and starting with the same premises isn't a good pattern. Okay, so if it's not good reasoning to move from a bunch of attitudes to some other attitude, then it is good reasoning to move from that bunch of attitudes to not having that further attitude. So, this has kind of the opposite problem to the first one. So, this overgenerates reasons not to believe. So, um, it's not good reasoning to move from the belief that grass is green to the belief that Hollande is president of France, for example but nor does it seem to be good reasoning to move from the belief that grass is green to not believing that Hollande is president of France. And the fact that grass is green doesn't seem to be a reason not to believe that Hollande is president of France. It just seems irrelevant to it. So that looks like a pretty serious objection to this uh, view of reasons for not believing stuff. Um, but actually, I think we can maybe bite the bullet on this. Um, so I think we can except that the fact that grass is green is a reason not to believe that Alain is president of France. Uh, because I think that's not as bad as it sounds for various reasons, and here's the main one. So, this reason is going to be maximally weak, it's going to be defeated by any reason at all on the other side. Why is that? Well, um, So just to say something about how defeat works, so if you've got a reason for doing one thing and a reason for doing the other, for doing some other thing, the idea is that the first reason defeats the second when if you've got both of them, it's still good reasoning to move from them to doing what the first thing was a reason for, but not good reasoning to move from both of them to doing what the second thing was a reason for. So in this case, take any arbitrary reason to believe that Hollande is president of France, call it P. So on the account I've given, from the belief that P, maybe together with some other true beliefs, you can make a truth-preserving transition or fittingness-preserving transition to the belief that Hollande is president of France. Now suppose you've also got uh, the fact that grass is green, so you believe that. Now add that to the premises of that bit of reasoning I just mentioned, well, that's still going to be a good bit of reasoning. So moving from whatever reason you had to believe that Hollande is president of France and the belief that grass is green to the belief that Hollande is president of France, that's still going to be truth-preserving and therefore fittingness-preserving. Because after all, the fact that grass is green... uh, doesn't have anything to do with whether Hollande is president of France and it doesn't have anything to do with whether your reason for believing that really is a reason or really does connect in the right way to the fact that Hollande is president. So it's still going to be good reasoning even when you add the premise that grass is green. So um, that's good reasoning. So by GN2 it won't be good reasoning to move from all of those things to not believing that Hollande is president of France So the reason that you had to believe it outweighs this putative reason not to believe it. But the reason that you had to believe it was arbitrary, right? I didn't even say what it was. It was just any reason to believe that Hollande is president of France. So these uh, fishy-looking reasons not to believe things are maximally weak. They're guaranteed to be defeated by any reason to believe the thing. So... um, I guess that makes it unsurprising that we would pretty much be happy to ignore those reasons and that we would judge them not to be reasons at all, even if they are. So that's how, well, that's a way of uh, responding to that issue. So there are, of course, many other issues and problems we could talk about, but I'll leave it there. Thank you very much.